Chapter Twenty Two of In Freedom's Cause. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gabrielle C. In Freedom's Cause by G. A. Henty. Chapter Twenty Two. A Prisoner. After some consultation between the leaders, it was agreed to make an attempt to capture the castle of Knockbon. It was known to possess a garrison of some sixty men only, and although strong, Archie and Sir James believed that it could be captured by assault. It was agreed that Archie should ride to reconnoiter it, and taking two mounted retainers, he started, the force remaining in the forest some eight miles distant. The castle of Knockbon stood on a rocky promontory, jutting a hundred and fifty yards into the sea. When he reached the neck of the point, which was but some twenty yards wide, Archie bade his followers fall back a short distance. "'I will ride,' he said, close up to the castle walls. "'My armor is good, and I care not for arrow or crossbow bolt. It were best you fell back a little, for they may have horses and may sally out in pursuit.' I am well mounted and fear not being overtaken, but it were best that you should have a good start. Archie then rode forward toward the castle. Seeing a knight approaching alone, the garrison judged that he was friendly, and it was not until it was seen that instead of approaching the drawbridge, he turned aside and rode to the edge of the fosse that they suspected that he was a foe. Running to the walls, they opened fire with arrows upon him, but by this time Archie had seen all that he required. Across the promontory ran a sort of fissure, some ten yards wide and as many deep. From the opposite edge of this the wall rose abruptly. Here assault would be difficult, and it was upon the gateway that an attack must be made. Several arrows had struck its armor and glanced off, and Archie now turned and quietly rode away, his horse being protected by a male like himself. Scarce had he turned when he saw a sight which caused him for a moment to draw rein. Coming at full gallop toward the promontory was a strong body of English horse, flying the banner of Sir Ingram de Amphaville. They were already nearer to the end of the neck than he was. There was no mode of escape, and drawing his sword he galloped at full speed to meet him. As he neared them, Sir Ingram himself, where the dotiest of Edward's knights, rode out with leveled lance to meet him. At full gallop, the knights charged each other. Sir Ingram's spear was pointed at the bars of Archie's helmet, but as the horses met each other, Archie with the blow of his sword cut off the head of the lance, and dealt a tremendous backhanded blow upon Sir Ingram's helmet as the latter passed him, striking the knight forward on to his horse's neck. Then, without pausing a moment, he dashed into the midst of the English ranks. The horsemen closed around him, and although he cut down several with his weaving blows, he was enabled to break his way through them. Such a conflict could not last long. Archie received a blow from behind which struck him from his horse. Regaining his feet, he continued the fight, but the blows rained thick upon him, and he was soon struck senseless to the ground. When he recovered, he was in a room in the keep of the castle. Two knights were sitting at the table near the couch on which he was lying. "'Ah!' exclaimed one, on seeing Archie open his eyes and move. "'I am glad to see your senses coming back to you, sir prisoner.' "'Truly, sir, I regret that so brief a knight should have fallen into my hands.' saying that in this war we must needs send our prisoners to King Edward, whose treatment of them is not, I must be unknown, gentle, for indeed you fought like any paladin. I deem not that there was a knight in Scotland, save the Bruce himself, who could have so borne himself, and never did I, Ingram de Amphaville, come nearer losing my seat than I did from that black can of blow you dealt me. My head rings with it still. My helmet will never be fit to wear again, 
and as the leech said when plastering my head, had not my school been at the thickest, you had assuredly cut through it. May I crave the name of so brave an antagonist? I am Sir Archibald Forbes, Archie replied. By St. Jago, the knight said, but I am sorry for it, seeing that none, save the Bruce himself, there is none in the Scottish ranks against whom King Edward is so bitter. In the days of Wallace there was no one whose name was more often on our lips than that of Sir Archibald Forbes, and now, under Bruce, it is ever coming to the front. I had thought to have asked Edward as a boon that I should kept you as my prisoner until exchange for one on our side, but being Sir Archibald Forbes I know that I were useless indeed. Nevertheless, Sir Knight, I will send to King Edward, begging him to look mercifully upon your case, seeing how bravely and honorably you have fought. Thanks for your good offices, Sir Ingram, Archie replied, but I shall ask no mercy for myself. I have never owed or paid him allegiance, but, as a true Scot, have fought for my country against a foreign enemy. But King Edward does not hold himself to be a foreign enemy, the knight said, seeing that Belial, your king, with common and all your great nobles, did homage to him as Lord Paramount of Scotland. It were an easy way, Archie rejoined, to gain in possession to nominate a puppet from among the nobles already your vassals, and then to get him to do homage. No, sir knight, neither common nor belial, nor any of the Angles, Norman nobles who hold estate in Scotland, have a right to speak for her, or to barter away her freedom. That is what Wallace and thousands of Scotchmen have fought and died to protest against, and what Scotchmen will do until their country is free. It is not a question for me to argue upon, Sir Ingram said surlily. King Edward bids me fight in Scotland, and as his knight and vassal I put on my harness without question. But I own to you that seeing I fought beside him in Gascony, when he, as the feudal vassal of the King of France, made war upon his lore, I cannot see that the offense is an unpotterable one when you Scotchmen do the same here. Concerning the lawfulness of his claim to be your lord paramount, I own that I neither know nor care one jot. However, sir, I regret much that you have fallen into my hands, for to Carlisle, where the king has long been lying, as you have doubtless heard, grievously ill, I must forthwith send you. I must leave you here with the governor, for in half an hour I mount and ride away with my troop. He will do his best to make your sojourn here easy until such time as I may have an opportunity of sending you by ship to Carlisle. And now farewell, sir, he said, giving Archie his hand. I regret that an unkind chance has thrown so gallant a knight into my hands, and that my duty to the king forbids me from letting you go free. Thanks, Sir Ingram, Archie replied. I have ever heard of you as a brave knight, and if this misfortune must fall upon me, would sooner that I should have been captured by you than by one of less fame and honor. The governor now had a meal with some wine set before Archie, and then left him alone. I am not at Carlisle yet, Archie said to himself. Unless I mistake, we shall have Sir James thundering at the gate before morning. Clooney will surely have ridden off at full speed to carry the news when he saw that I was cut off, and e'en now he will be marching toward the castle. As he expected, Archie was roused before morning by a tremendous outburst of noise. Heavy blows were given, followed by a crash, which Archie judged to be the fall of the drawbridge across the fosse. He guessed that some of Douglas's men had kept forward noiselessly, had descended the fosse, and managed to climb up to the gate, and had then suddenly attacked with their axes the chains of the drawbridge. A prodigious uproar raged in the castle. Orders were shouted in the garrison, and roused from their sleep, snatched up their arms and hastened to the walls. Outside rose the war cry, A Douglas! A Douglas! mingled with others of Glencairn to the rescue. 
For a few minutes all was confusion, then a light suddenly burst up and grew every instant more and more bright. Douglas has piled faggots against the gates, Archie said to himself. Another quarter of an hour and the castle will be his. Three or four minutes later the governor with six soldiers, two of whom bore torches, entered the room. You must come along at once, sir knight, the governor said. The attack is at the fiercest, and I know not whether we shall make head against it, but anyway I must not risk your being recaptured. I must therefore place you in a boat and send you off without delay to the castle of Port Patrick. It was in vain for Archie to think of resistance. He was unarmed and helpless. Two of the soldiers laid hands on him and hurried him along until they reached the lower chambers of the castle. The governor unlocked a door, and with one of the torch-bearers led the way down some narrow steps. These were some fifty in number, and then a level passage ran along for some distance. Another door was open, and the fresh breeze blew upon them as they issued forth. They stood on some rocks at the foot of the promontory on which the castle stood. A large boat lay close at hand, drawn to the shore. Archie and the six soldiers entered her. Four of the latter took the oars, and the others seated themselves by their prisoner, and then the boat rowed away, while the governor returned to aid in the defense of the castle. The boat was but a quarter of a mile away when on the night air came the sound of a wild outburst of triumphant shouts which told that the Scots had won their way into the castle. With muttered curses the men bent to their oars and every minute took them further away from Knockbon. Archie was bitterly disappointed. He had reckoned confidently on the efforts of Douglas to deliver him, and the possibility of his being sent off by sea had not entered his mind. He had seen to him that now his fate was sealed. He had noticed on embarking that there were no other boats lying at the foot of the promontory, and pursuit would therefore be impossible. After rowing eight hours, the party reached St. Port Patrick, where Archie was delivered by the soldiers to the governor with a message from their commander saying that the prisoner, Sir Archibald Forbes, was a captive of great importance, and was, by the orders of Sir Ingram de Enverville, who had captured him, to be sent on to Carlisle to the king when a ship should be going thither. A fortnight passed before a vessel sailed. Archie was placed in irons and so securely guarded in his dungeon that escape was altogether impossible. So harsh was his confinement that he longed for the time when the vessel would sail for Carlisle, even though he was sure that the same fate which had attended so many of Scotland's best and bravest knights awaited him there. The winds were contrary, and the vessel was ten days upon the voyage. Upon reaching Carlisle, Archie was handed to the governor of the castle, and the next morning was conducted to the presence of the king himself. The aged monarch, in his last extremity of sickness, lay upon a couch. Several of his nobles stood around him. So, he said, as the prisoner was brought before him, this is Archibald Forbes, the one companion of the traitor Wallace who has hitherto escaped my vengeance. So, young sir, you have ventured to brave my anger and to think yourself capable of coping with the Lion of England. I have done my utmost, sir king, Archie said firmly, such as it was for the freedom of my country. No traitor am I, nor was my leader Wallace. Neither he nor I ever took vow of allegiance to you, maintaining ever that the kings of England had neither claim nor right over Scotland. He has been murdered, foully and dishonorably, as you will doubtless murder me, and as you have killed many nobler knights and gentlemen. But others will take our places, and so the fight will go on until Scotland is free. Scotland will never be free, the king said with angry vehemence. Rather than that, she shall cease to exist. I will slay till there is not one of Scottish blood, man, woman, or child, to bear the name. Let him be taken to Berwick, he said. There let him be exposed for a week in a cage outside the castle, that the people may see what sort of man this is who matches himself against the might of England. Then let him be hung, drawn, and quartered. 
his head sent to London, and his limbs distributed between four Scottish cities. I go, Sir King, Archie says to the attendants of Beasts to seize him, and at the end of the week I will meet you before the throne of God, for you, methinks, will have gone thither before me, and there I will tax you with all your crimes, with the slaughter of tens of thousands of Scottish men, women, and children, with cities destroyed and countries wasted, and with the murder and cold blood of a score of noble knights whose sole offense was that they fought for their native country. With these words Archie turned and walked proudly from the king's princess. An involuntary murmur of admiration at his fearless bearing escaped from the knights and nobles assembled round the couch of the dying monarch. When, two days later, Archie entered the gates of Berwick Castle, the bells of the city were tolling, for a horseman had just ridden in with the news that Edward had expired on the evening before, being the sixth of the day of July, 1307, just at the moment when he was on the point of starting with the great army he had assembled to crush out the insurrection of Scotland. So deep was his hate for the people who had dared to oppose his will, that when dying, he called before him his eldest son, and in the presence of his parents caused him to swear upon the saints, as so soon as he should be dead, his body should be boiled in a cauldron until the flesh should be separated from the bones, after which the flesh should be committed to the earth, but the bones preserved, and that, as often as the people of Scotland rebelled, the military array of the kingdom should be summoned and the bones carried at the head of the army into Scotland. His hearty directed should be conveyed to and deposited in the Holy Land. So died Edward I, a champion of the Holy Sepulchre, King of England, Lord of Ireland, Duke of Anquitan, Conqueror of Wales, and would-be Conqueror of Scotland. In many respects his reign was a great and glorious one, for he was more than a great conqueror. He was, to England, a wise and noble king, and taken altogether he was perhaps the greatest of the Plantagenists. Historians have striven to excuse and palliate his conduct toward Scotland. They have glossed over his crimes and tried to explain away the records of his deeds of savage atrocity, and to show that his claims to that kingdom, which had not a shadow of foundation save from the submission of her Anglo-Norman nobles, almost all of whom were his own vassals and own estates in England, were just and righteous. Such is not the true function of history. Edward's sole claim to Scotland was that he was determined to unite under his rule England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland, and he failed because the people of Scotland, deserted as they were by all their natural leaders, preferred death to such a slavery as that under which Ireland and Wales helplessly groaned. His dying wishes were not observed. His body was laid in rest in Westminster Abbey, and on the tomb was inscribed, Edward I, the Mallet of the Scots. End of chapter 22 Recording by Gabrielle C.